the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, the Arts and Humanities Research Council Cultural Value Project, presented by Professor Geoffrey Krosick. This talk was recorded live on the 6th of October 2014 at the National Archives Q. Thank you very much um, for the invitation to, to, to give this talk on the HRC Cultural Value Project. Um, I assume that all previous people who give talks get a bit intimidated at the notion that they're talking um, uh, on the Big Ideas programme. Um, but I do actually think that this is quite a big idea, so I think it, it fits. I don't know about your other speakers. Um, let me uh, explain why the Cultural Value Project um, exists. It was established by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, HRC, uh, late in 2012, um, and I was asked to, to direct it. The aim was, um, at the time, and still is, to identify the ways that arts and cultural engagement makes a difference, uh, difference to individuals and a difference to society. The HRC had been engaging with this question for some time. Um, they had had various... Um, reports done, one in particular from, by Dave O'Brien, which is much cited. Um, but there was a general agreement that none of that had been satisfactory. Not to say that Dave's work wasn't good, but he'd, in a sense, been asked the wrong exam question to um, um, that was really needed. It was always rather simplistic in the approach as to what was being asked for, precisely because the aim was to produce something um, that would be accepted by the Treasury. Um, and that led to limitations. Limitations, I should say, primarily because people misjudge the, the Treasury um, rather than um, because um, the Treasury is over-narrow in what it wants. Um, so the aim was to m get a project which moved beyond simple measures. Um, past discussion about the value of arts and culture to, to individuals and society, um, and we're making that distinction. It often is not made at all. Uh, it's assumed that if you aggregate what it does for individuals than it does it for society. I think there's, there's this, it's more complicated than that. Past efforts have been driven by a political imperative. Um, the aim has essentially been to justify public spending on the arts and culture. Um, and therefore, uh, the case that was made was in terms of social inclusion, because under New Labour that was one of the key issues that the art sector had to deliver on. It was made in terms of economic impact because that seemed like a, a straightforward way of demonstrating the importance of art and culture was to show that the economic impact, the economic activity that was generated by it. Um, and yet neither of those, particularly the economic one, um, um, seemed satisfactory once you move be beyond the political imperative of, of, of advocacy. And I would argue it's not even that useful for ad advocacy pur purposes um, because I don't think the Treasury actually believes the numbers it gets. Um, in the economic impact analyses. Um, some time ago, I heard Robert Peston um, give a talk on the value of the arts um, to launch a debate, um, and he put up an absolutely brilliant slide. He said, you know, I am an economist, um, and he went through the arguments that are used about the economic impact of the arts um, and expressed his scepticism about a lot of the work that was there. And then he put up a single slide which said this, um, if we could demonstrate conclusively that the economic impact of the arts was zero, would we, pretend, would we prevent children from learning to draw at school? And I thought that was a brilliant way of putting it. Because if the answer is no, we wouldn't stop them, then let's start talking about other things rather than the economic impact. And that was just a classic way in which a journalist can actually come up with something very, very pithy and to the point. The, the Cultural Value Project is about research, not about advocacy, therefore. Our key objective 
is to understand. It is a research council that's funding it, not an organisation um, um, campaigning for resources. And therefore we have to ex expect that some of the findings we come up with will not be welcome. We might well discover that some things that everyone claims the arts and culture does, it doesn't do. Um, we would need to recognise that in some of the areas where we say it's beneficial, for example, art and culture being used in post-conflict reconciliation, which it's often referred to, well, hey, remember a moment, a lot of those conflicts were generated by art and culture in the first place. You only have to look at the marching bands um, and parades in Northern Ireland and the murals on the bog side to know that art and culture is not necessarily just the goody in, 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 in conflicts. Um, and so it's research, not advocacy, and it needed a much more ambitious and broader approach. Um, and that was very important. I'll come back to that in a moment. It's interesting that since we started the project, the, there's been an increasing amount of discussion about the value of art and culture. Um, uh, the Warwick Commission for the Future of Cultural Value was, was, was set up, which will be reporting early in the new year. There's What Next, a really excellent campaigning organisation, um, not just for the publicly funded arts, but, but much more broadly. Arts Council England um, is now taking its research responsibilities, I think, much more seriously and, 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 and taking a longer-term view of it. Um, I think there's a sense around of a need for something different, and I, I hope that we played a part in, in generating that. We certainly seem to have played a part um, in generating some of the language, the formulations, the approach that others are, are talking about. I'm, I'm not saying that we're the only players, but it's very nice when you see a phrase that you have started using in your own documentation, in your own speeches, being picked up by other organisations and used. Um, I'm not claiming any particular pride in that, but simply that we're playing a role already, I think, in helping inform what I always refer to as a more grown-up conversation about why art and culture matters. So, um, what do I mean by a broader approach? Well, it's the value of, to individuals and society of all arts and culture. That means publicly funded, of course, but also commercial art and culture, third sector, amateur. There are 10 million people um, involved in amateur arts and culture in one way or another. Um, and they're just simply missed out of, of, of all these um, discussions. And informal and participatory art and culture, which I'll, I'll come back to. Um, that's our key interest. Why some of it should be subsidised is a very important question, but it's a secondary question. And, and until we've established why art and culture matters, it's hard to, uh, to argue why some of it should get a public subsidy. The second element in the broader approach is the breadth of arts and cultural activities, from art to theatre, from music to literature, from film to design, including museums and heritage, um, and including something, two things that have risen up our agenda, from, actually from quite early on, um, digital consumption and co-creation and, and art and cultural consumption at home. The latter one first, in case I forget to come back to it when I get excited about the digital. Um, but um, we always ignore arts and cultural engagement at home. Do you know that 94% of all films are watched at home? Um, and yet when we talk about the experience of film in a serious way, we talk about people going to the cinema. Um, the vast majority of all music that people listen to is listened to at home or while travelling. But we actually interview people when they come out of concerts to ask them what they think. And so we're missing that huge consumption of culture that goes on at home. But equally interesting, and, and not unrelated to it, there's digital consumption. Um, clearly, digital consumption of, of, of art and culture has become very important now. It's about the way people access it, the way they consume it. Uh, but it's more than that. 
because um, the digital access to arts and culture um, also generates um, something else, which is digital production, co-production, the fact that people sitting at home can actually, um, through um, digital access, through websites, can actually compose music with people around the world um, together. Um, you, simple level is the mashups, but there's also quite high-level electronic composition going on worldwide. You can get people... There is co-creation, um, co-design, all kinds of activities going on that simply can only happen in, in the digital sphere. And that, interestingly, starts breaking down the classic distinction, which I've never quite believed in, between those who produce culture and those who consume culture. Um, I think whenever we sit in the theatre, we produce our own culture. Every one of us has a different experience. We bring to it ourselves. But, of course, real co-creation can go on in the, in, in the digital sphere. Um, so there's really interesting consequences for this, one of which is niche communities. We, we, we live in a world where there are far more niche communities, for, particularly for music, um, than there were 20, 30 years ago. And so it's being changed. Digital consumption is changing people's um, engagement with art and culture. But we want to start, and this is the key element in our broader approach, we want to start um, with the value that's located in the arts and cultural experience itself. And we emphasise the experience. Um, and that means getting away from the... Um, well, no, it doesn't mean it, but for us it means getting away from the distinction between the intrinsic value of the arts and the instrumental value, that dichotomy, um, which I think is just simply unhelpful. It's unhelpful because for those of us who want to argue that the arts are about more than their economic impact, we end up retreating into this thing called the intrinsic, um, which essentially says we believe in the arts. We're not going to tell you much more than that. Well, actually, it drives us towards implying that the arts don't make a difference, that they're good for themselves. That's what people mean by intrinsic. Well, if we didn't think that art made a difference, why should we be bothered with it? Why should we just treat it as a hobby that people can engage with or not? Of course it makes a difference. And therefore, the, the distinction between intrinsic and instrumental is wrong. Um, what is critical for us is to look at the difference that art and culture makes. Instrumental? Of course then instrumental. Um, but also, the reason why people have these other benefits, what generate these other benefits, is because it is the passion and the interest that they have for the artistic experience that allows the secondary benefits to flow. So it's just a forced dichotomy in our view. Um, but what we do want to do is prioritise the arts and cultural experience itself, and that is always uh, challenging. Um, We've adopted the framework approach. I'll tell you more about what that means about the experience in a moment. Um, we've adopted a, a framework approach, and that's what I was asked to do by the HRC uh, from the outset. Um, and that is um, to look at the value of arts and cultural engagement to individuals and to society. And as I said before, don't assume that the latter is merely an aggregate of the former. Um, and some methodologies, particularly some forms of econometric, um, and I think actually probably well-being um, measures, um, do assume that if you get individual um, statements in some way about the value to them, maybe a monetized statement, um, and you ag aggregate all of that, you have therefore got um, the value to society. Well, no, I think there are very important areas um, of which I would say, you know, things as diverse as mental health and good citizenship, where there are society that benefits from this, um, 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 as well as or sometimes more than individuals. Um, so... Value of arts and cultural engagement to individuals and to society. Um, and that means that there's no single approach, theoretical or methodological, which we think um, is appropriate. 
we are not going to try and find one measure or one theoretical approach to answer the question about what is, um, what is the value of art and culture, what is cultural value. Hence the framework approach. It's to produce a framework, a framework of different components of cultural value, and I'm going to, in a moment, um, spend some time talking about those. Um, but it's not a basket, because a basket would suggest that these things are disconnected, apart from jostling together in the basket. Um, far from it. We, we think that one of the theoretical challenges, or one of the, one of the research challenges, will be to actually show the connections between the different, um, between the different um, um, components I'll be talking about in a moment. And so the, the framework contains components of cultural value, that is, the different possible dimensions of that value, and I'll explain that in much more detail in a moment. And then secondly, the methodologies and forms of evidence to capture them. And that's equally important um, and something the cultural sector is not good at. The cultural sector, as I shall say later when I talk about methodologies, is not good at coming up with methodologies. Um, um, it tends to retreat to telling stories or producing economic impact figures. Um, we need to do better than that, and I hope we can. Um, so let me move on to the core components as we currently see them. Um, they've evolved and developed since we started um, um, just under two years ago. Um, and in my mind, they're actually getting more and more interesting, um, less and less disconnected, more refined. But the single one that we always put first, and that I always put first, is the reflective individual and the engaged citizen. It was a phrase that I invented when asked to take the project on. Um, I thought we'd move on to something better, but people seem to like it, and so we've kept it. Um, I think it's the most innovative um, um, conception of, 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 of the components of cultural value, but also the most challenging. It's got a terrific response from people, um, and it's what links us most clearly to the experience of art and culture, which we want to do. We want to actually start wherever possible with what happens to people when they are engaged. What is the experience they have? Because that's what most of the evaluation that goes on tends to um, neglect and ignore. Um, the best it asks of, of, of people is, did you have a nice time? Did you enjoy it? Would you come back again? We, we, can do, we need to go well beyond that. So if we think that the reflective individual and the engaged citizen... Um, is a key component. We explore it both through the everyday. What happens to people um, when they go to the theatre, when they go to a rock concert, um, when they listen to music, and when they go to an art exhibition, whatever it is, um, in an everyday way. But also we look at it through the exceptional, um, because I think looking at the exceptional can give us insights that are actually in, in vi less visible in the everyday. I'll explain what that mo means in a moment. As you can see at the bottom, what that means, uh, insights from acute situations. But I'll come to that in a second. Um, the reflective individual and engaged citizen, um, we've s at the moment, and I, I think these, these categories might, 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 might be reshaped a little, but we've, we've, we've categorised it in three ways. There's the effect in relation to the self, the effect of arts and cultural experiences in giving you enlarged and enhanced experience, allowing you to reflect on things you don't normally think about, and to reflect particularly on difficult aspects of your own life, um, which you can do in an artistic situation because of the sense of, of distance. Um, and that links in to the shape and meaning of empathy. And, and empathy is one of the critical elements that comes out of artistic experience. Um, empathy that requires aesthetic distance. It requires what art provides, which is aesthetic distance. That is, that when you are watching 
Othello strangling Desdemona, you don't leap on the stage to stop him, whereas if you saw your neighbour killing his wife, you would probably intervene. That distance is what enables you to engage with difficult subjects at the distance. And I think it's one of the most powerful things that art does for all of us. Um, the second element is, is, is the way art and cultural engagement um, can act as an intermediary between the self and others, um, giving you a sense of the, giving one the sense of a diverse, the diversity of human cultures and values, an understanding of the other, an understanding of oneself in relation to others, because through art and culture you engage with worlds beyond your own, and that, of course, is important to personal and group identity. And then there's the effects in relation to the other. And that means the consequences for civic engagement of this wider understanding of your place in a wider world with people who are different from you, um, with interests and with problems that are the same and also different from yours, which is one of the things that art and culture generates. What's the impact, uh, consequences for that, for civic engagement, um, for commitment to social justice, for the, the, these kinds of issues? The British Council's trust agenda... Um, exposing people around the world to British art and culture and engaging with their art and cultural production as part of that it, as a way of building a greater understanding of and the British Council would argue trust in Britain um, is I think one dimension of that it's about building the kind of understanding through art and culture that is much more difficult to build through other means certainly through propaganda um, or through making speeches or, or, or whatever but all of that is quite tricky to research, and we are getting some research done on it, it's quite interesting, but it's tricky to research, um, which is why um, we are looking for insights from acute situations. Um, the um, role of arts, if you look at people in the criminal justice system or in post-conflict situations, art is used a lot there. And the question is, what happens to people when they, when, when they experience that? Art in the criminal justice system is still surviving in spite of all the difficulties of working in prisons. Um, for, 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 for anyone who's trying to bring anything positive into the, into the prison environment. For those of you who've seen it, the Kerstler Trust, um, um, which, which um, runs an annual competition for art um, produced by, by, by prisoners, um, has a terrific exhibition on at the moment in the um, space at the bottom of the Royal Festival Hall, which is really very, very impressive and, and worth going to see. But going on in prisons, there's art, there's theatre, there's music, there's reading... There's needlework, this astonishing organisation called Fine Cell Work, um, that actually gets... They work with prisoners, usually men, who are now imprisoned for 25, 30, 35 years, and they sit in their cells doing needlework, which sells internationally because it's such good quality as they develop. Those who are released are, in, are helped to set up businesses in it. I find that an extraordinary thing to happen. Um, there's lots more I could say about art in prisons. I won't. Um, does it reduce reoffending? No evidence yet that it does. But interestingly, the NOMS, the National um, Offender um, Management System, uh, Management Serv Service, um, does actually strongly support this. All the leading people went to the Kirstler Trust show because they know it changes the prisoners. It may not stop them reoffending. Actually, you don't, you don't not reoffend because you've not had a, a, an art class in prison when you've got no job, no money, nowhere to live, and your partner's left you. Um, on the other hand, um, it changes people. Um, arts and culture in post-conflict situations gives us another insight um, it's, uh, into what happens in acute circumstances. Um, people, um, it's, it's much used in, in post-conflict situations, um, and I think it's a, we had a 
big international symposium about this um, a few weeks ago, which was really interesting. Um, it's arguable how it works and when it works. And I think the, um, the belief that it will somehow build bridges between communities that have been fighting um, is, is doubtful until a lot of other work's gone on. Um, but nonetheless, art and culture is used a lot in these situations to enable people to distance themselves. It's aesthetic distance. Kerbosh Theatre do remarkable work um, in Ireland, in, in Belfast, um, where they develop plays that are very political about the Troubles, and they take them in, deliberately take them, into, um, into sectarian communities. They will, they will just perform to Protestants, just perform to, to Catholics. Um, same play. Um, because they say if people are going to come to terms with and understand what they did, what they've been through, what their community's been through, they need, actually, to do it in a safe environment of just being amongst themselves. But these are powerful plays that apparently produce very powerful debates that would never happen were it not done with this degree of distance that, that culture creates. Um, there's one other area that I'll mention briefly, which is for formal and informal carers. There are 7 million people in this country now who are caring. A small proportion of those are employed in caring occupations. The majority are informal. There's a lot of evidence now that, that engaging with art and culture actually helps people in those caring situations cope with the daily demands, um, increase empathy, um, but also just create a sense of distance and another larger world that goes beyond the immediate care pressures. I spent a long time on re reflective individual engaged citizen because I think in many ways it's... it's it's the most interesting. I'll try and move a little more quickly through um, the others of the four components. Communities, re regeneration and space um, is the second. Um, and it's the one of... Um, this covers the regeneration of urban uh, infrastructure and communities, obviously um, capitals of culture, um, where um, in Liverpool now um, it was Bel Belfast... It uh, was Derry, sorry, um, Derry, London, Derry. Um, Liverpool, Glasgow a long time ago, Hull is the, is the next one, sometimes European capital of culture, sometimes just a UK city of culture. But the ways in which those have been invested in in order to regenerate communities is done through art and culture um, because of the belief that art and culture can actually get communities engaged um, with, 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 with new infrastructural developments and new community developments in a way in which other things will not. But... There are also the new buildings that transformed Tyneside, for those who know it, um, about 10 to 15 years ago. Um, um, Turner Contemporary at, at Margate. Um, the way, for those who've lived in London for many years, the London South Bank has been transformed by cultural institutions. Um, a lot of claims are made um, for um, the impact, uh, the regeneration impact um, um, of, uh, of, 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 of um, infrastructure development um, in, um, in the arts and culture on communities. It, the evidence tends to be simply looking at the economic impact, and I think that, 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 that is unfortunate um, because we need to look much more um, on community impact as well. Um, there's, under this heading, cultural assets and neighbourhoods. Um, really interested by work that's done by um, SIAP, the um, Social Impact of the Arts Project uh, at the University of um, Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Talked a lot to the people who run that. They've done... Very, very systematic work. You can do it. There's, there's, there's very detailed census data, um, tax data, other civic data, um, down to uh, neighbourhood level, that is eight block squares um, um, in, in Philadelphia, as in all American cities. And they have established a clear difference between those neighbourhoods that high, have a high level of cultural assets. By cultural assets, they don't just mean, and they don't primarily mean a, an art gallery or a concert hall, but rather a, uh, a, um, a, a bar that, that, that plays late-night music, 
or design studios or artist workshops or whatever. So very, very um, often very small-scale cultural assets, and that those neighbourhoods have much stronger readings on having low crime rates, um, higher educational attendance, higher likelihood to vote, safer. And that's not about... Um, that, that's after you've controlled for, uh, for income um, and other differences. It's not, it's not about different social groups living there. Um, is about what happens in the community. And it's really interesting stuff. There are community arts interventions, which we know. Um, lots of local authorities have been involved with quite a long time, and also um, not local authorities, um, sort of third sector organisations. That's been using art and culture to try and build community relationships um, and community identities and to get people, often in very disadvantaged communities, to believe in the capacity for taking control um, of their own. Uh, of their own lives and their own communities. There's the role of, of, of public art on civic space, the way in which public art, whether permanent um, or ephemeral, has an impact on the way the civic space is seen, lived and used. Um, often controversially, not always because people welcome it, but it does actually create a presence in, pub- in civic space, um, which, which, which arguably is important. There's only a limited amount of evidence again in that area. And there's something which... Um, I think we mustn't neglect in the project, and that's the role of art and culture in rural communities. Um, it's quite hard to research. There, there are obvious areas like intangible heritage, and there are projects to capture that, local histories, memories, images being gathered, and so on. There's digital access in the countryside, which means that people who have difficulty in accessing urban art and culture find it easier to do so, though only digitally. But actually, I think we need to get beyond all of that and start thinking about the way conventional cultural activity goes on in the countryside in ways that, in, in rural communities, in ways that we are often, are, are, often neglected. Touring companies, some of which tour only to very small, tiny towns and, and to villages, um, those get barely researched to see what their impact is. Um, and did you know um, that if you want to look at, in village communities in Northern Ireland and in Scotland, look for where the artistic and cultural activity comes from, it is apparently young farmers' clubs, most of which have an amateur dramatic society um, or a choir. These are things that one just sort of slips past if you don't, if you don't look for them. And so we're really interested of, about what goes on in rural areas as far as art, art and culture is concerned. The third area I want to po- point to is the economic benefits, um, of which economic impact is there, but it's not, I think, actually the most interesting there's the relationship, that there's the, the argument, which comes particularly, we come to a number of people, but I've heard it most made by uh, an Italian economist whom I know, Pierluigi Sacco, um, that societies with high levels of arts and cultural um, engagement also are more innovative in economic and social ways. It's not about the creative economy, it's about actually high levels of art and culture um, in a society and that society simply being more open and innovative and engaging with new ideas. It sounds inherently plausible. Um, the only data I've seen him show is too high level, and I'm not, I, I want more than that. Um, very hard to research, but I think a really interesting question. The second um, is about the creative economy. Um, and it's not just that, obviously, arts and cultural activity feeds into the creative economy in so many ways, but also it's something, again, broader that I'm interested in. Um, again, hard to... to, to um, to research. In every speech I give about the creative economy, I always say, and I particularly say this in speeches in the Far East where the gap is often um, um, very big, always say 
that if you don't have an imaginative, open, lively arts and cultural environment in general in the city, in the, in the country, then you won't have successful creative economy. Um, and I think that's true in this country as well. Um, problem is, I have no idea whether it's... I have no way of showing that it's true. Um, it is just one of those things that, that, again, one of those things that I think is really important to try and research. It's proven very hard to get that research done. Um, but those two, I think, are really important economic benefits um, about, the, about, about arts and culture because they get to the heart of what arts and culture does for people um, and for the way they relate to each other and the way they think and the way they behave. Um, more concretely, there's the ecologies between publicly funded and commercial um, art uh, and, and culture. Um, it's now being much more talked about. Nick Heitner um, regularly puts in his speeches, and Stephen Freer, when he received the Oscar for, for Queen, actually did say in his acceptance speech um, that all of the leading actors um, who had appeared in, in, in The Queen um, had, in the previous five years, appeared in the subsidised theatre in Britain. Um, he, said, it is the, you know, he said, it is the subsidised theatre that makes great Hollywood successes and Oscar successes possible um, and makes great film possible and makes, of course, the, the, the commercial theatre possible, the number of things that go from the national theatre into the commercial theatre. Um, um, it's not just a matter of spillovers from one to the other. It's actually about an ecology in which these move together. And we're getting some research done on this, um, asking various prominent figures um, across different forms of, of, of the arts and culture um, where they find their talent, where they find their ideas, where they get their risks taken. And because one thing the publicly funded arts can do is take risks. That's what it's subsidised for, anyways. Um, that's why it shouldn't be expected to have success all the time, because it, in a sense it's the R&D wing of, of, of the commercial, culture, um, commercial arts and cultural sector. So we're getting research done on that, which I think is really interesting. There's one ar area that um, is pro also proving difficult to, to research, and that is, um, the, um, does art and culture, does the cultural vitality of Britain lead to inward investment to the UK and its cities? It's something we all know, don't we? It, I mean, big companies want to come to London because um, it's such an exciting place to live. We know it, but actually there's, there's no real evidence of that, except anecdotal evidence. Um, I know somebody who... Um, um, was in, a, um, in a, 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 an embassy, um, um, British embassy, um, talking to, making the case for um, large corporates relocating or uh, relocating a fair amount of their, 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 their um, activity to the UK. And he said he always started talking about how your bright, very clever, young employees will love living in Britain. And not just in London, but cities like Manchester and, and Glasgow that have tremendous um, cultural vitality as well. It is one of the attractions to come here, um, and it needs to be recognised. But again, it's quite difficult to pin that down with evidence. And yes, of course, finally, on the economic benefits, there is economic impact. Um, it's the basis of the case to government, is what Maria Miller said in her now infamous comments last year um, um, about how she had to make the case to government in economic terms. Um, I think we can do better than just making it in economic terms. But of course there are economic benefits. Um, um, all publicly funded arts organisations try to make the case in economic terms. I think that from my, from my experience, the Treasury is sceptical about a lot of the economic impact data it receives. Um, it doesn't disregard it, um, but the Treasury is full of very clever people and they can... They, they, they can challenge some of the ways in which that, 
that, that, that, that data is put together, some of the assumptions behind it, and arts organisations that produce it don't believe in it very much because it's not what they think they're there for. So everyone is playing this particular dance, involved in this dance, about economic impact data. I think it's needed. I think it is needed. Um, but I think there are real doubts about how much it tells us, and we need to be careful. Um, and one of the purposes of the Cultural Value Project is to get beyond the economic argument um, back to Robert Peston's um, if we knew that the economic benefits were zero, would we stop children learning to draw? Or would we stop people going to the theatre? Um, or would we stop them singing in church choirs? Or whatever it is that people do that's art and culture. Um, and the fourth of our components is health and well-being. And there are many dimensions to this. Um, and a great deal of work going on in the country. Unlike the economic side, where I felt that so many of the interesting questions are not being effectively researched, and we're trying to get it done, but it's, it's not, not easy. Um, in health and well-being, there's a lot of work going on, uh, and it's very interesting. Um, there are different dimensions, and I have to move through them for reasons of, of, of time fairly quickly. There's the whole long-term issue of the long-term health outcomes, physical health and mental health, of people engaging through their lives with art and culture. There is very little, there's really no work in this country on this, but there's quite a lot of work in Nordic countries, Norway, Finland, um, Sweden, um, where they've used very long-run data, often 20, 30 years, data that's been collected on people's health, but also has collected other things about, information about them, including their arts and cultural activity. And there is, they, the, the, the argument that emerges from that is that people who actively engage in art and culture um, over a long period of time through their lives have much better health outcomes than those that don't. Ah, you cry, um, that's because they're all middle-class people, isn't it? No, it's when you control for, after you've controlled, for um, educational background, income level, when you control for even questions like whether they smoke or not. Um, you can control for all of those, and there's still, an in, there's still a benefit from art and culture. Now, there are criticisms of that work as to, as to whether it's controlled, whether it has looked at all the confounding variables and so on. But I think we can't dismiss it, and I think it's a really interesting issue and that we need to know more about, and we're trying to get some work done in this country on that. There's the more precise area of the way in which arts-based clinical and therapeutic interventions take place, and there's a lot of this going on at the moment, the use of arts and culture, um, arts interventions in particular, um, in clinical therapies, um, in mental health, there's really interesting work being done, for example, by the Readers' Organisation, which gets groups of people reading aloud to each other and discussing the, what, what, what they've read. And um, There's work with um, arts with stroke patients. Um, one of the biggest problems for smoke, stroke, pa stroke patients in um, stopping recovery is depression, um, and there are clear benefits to, 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 to mental health um, of people, of stroke patients, who are involved in active arts and cultural activity um, in hospital compared with the control group that are not. There's a lot of work going on on those interventions and, and, and we're trying to pick up on all of that. There's, of course, dementia, um, increasingly used in uh, art and culture in, 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 in early stage dementia, um, but not only there, um, but the use of dance, of music, of storytelling um, with dementia um, um, patients. Um, there's care communities that I referred to before, that is um, professional and family carers, um, where art and culture um, is being actively used to help people um, handle this. Uh, one example, veterans hospitals in Maine, the United States, um, where the 
nursing staff um, working with very difficult traumatised um, patients. Um, um, the National Endowment for the Humanities in, in the States funded them to have a reading group um, to, to, to read books and talk about them. Nothing to do with war, nothing to do with their job, but just to have a reading group once a week. And, and the, those involved, uh, the nurses, um, reported the transformation in their attitude to their patients. They had simply become. Um, they were more relaxed about it. They had calmed in their work relationship. And they actually had developed the empathy um, that helps you deal with difficult situations. There's a lot of work on care communities, and I won't go into that now, though I can later if you want. There's ageing, of which, of course, um, there's a lot of practice going on. Um, um, some of it takes them back to long-term health. Um, but also, um, there's the whole way in which arts participation is seen as a, as a necessary part of ageing um, without losing your capacities and without becoming depressed, um, or indeed without becoming becoming ill. Um, art and culture is used a great deal um, uh, in, in these areas, sometimes with real engagement and reflection. Ages and Stages, um, an organisation in Stoke-on-Trent, um, which, which organises drama with um, elderly people, um, has done some really interesting work with them creating plays with young people um, about generational difference. Um, or um, there's creative dance, um, Grand Gestures Elders Dance Group that do creative dance in the stations of Sunderland. Um, you know, there are, there are real things going on here. This is not just passing the time for people. It's real, challenging artistic and cultural activity that makes a difference. And there's the whole area of subjective well-being, um, finally, in the components. Increasingly important in government thinking, um, the ONS surveys... Um, um, contain many dimensions of, of different variables that are supposed to contribute to subjective well-being, and cultural questions are now in there, um, and um, the correlations between cultural activity and subjective well-being are being explored. I have significant questions about the methodologies. Um, for example, whether museum going increases your well-being and then how you attach a, a, a monetary value um, to that increase in well-being. I think there are real methodological questions here. It's an early stage. Um, but it's very important to government, and it does ask interesting issues. Um, and uh, I think it's something that we're, we're certainly going to explore um, more. So that's our current thinking on components, and that's the largest part of what I want to say. But I, I want to move on now to talk about the challenge of evaluation. I said that there are two parts to the framework. One is the components, and you can see the breadth of the components. Then there's the challenge of evaluation. We've not been good at evaluation of arts and culture. And by we, I mean society, but particularly people in the arts and cultural sector. It is used for advocacy, making the case to government, or it's used for compliance. Your funder wants to know the outcomes. And so you jump through the hoops of counting whatever it is we were meant to count and produce it for the funder. But there's no real sense that anyone um, regards that as something they, they want seriously to be involved in. And so they resist all this counting people in the arts sector, by telling stories, by telling anecdotes. Um, anecdotes about the transformation experience that an individual had at a particular artistic event. Well, yes, fine, but you don't talk about the non-transformation experiences, the people who came out saying, what was all that about? Um, no one ever tells the stories about that. And even the transformational anecdotes, um, as somebody once said, the plural of anecdote is not data. Um, <laughs> and we do need, if we want data on that, we need to take it seriously. 
We need gen uh, evaluation that generally helps understanding and also evaluation that can be useful to practitioners and organisations so that they're not just doing it for someone else. They're doing it because they want to know how they're, what they're achieving through their artistic and cultural um, activity. Um, and we need the methodologies that help them to do that and we want to try and give some emphasis to it. A critical point from the beginning is that we evaluate, we don't measure. Um, there is no hierarchy between the quantitative and the qualitative in our thinking. Qualitative data is not what you turn to when you can't find any numbers. Qualitative data is just as valid and important as quantitative data, providing it's appropriate for what you're evaluating, and it's rigorous. And we should not assume that randomised control trials are the gold standard for rigour. No, it is true I do not want a drug to be administered to me that hasn't gone through randomised control trials. Um, but it's not the same if what you're trying to understand is whether people who go to see, um, let us say people in Britain today, who go to see an Islamic art exhibition, um, and that influences the way they see Muslims and the rich tradition of Islam, that is not something you can count. It's something you get out of rigorous qualitative um, um, research. And those are the sorts of things um, that, that, that are more susceptible. So much is more susceptible to qualitative research. The point is, it has to be rigorous and not just simply collecting, um, collecting nice stories that we want to tell. So methodologies for evaluation are a major theme of our work. Um, and we've identified, now. I, I simply will move through these quickly, I can answer questions if you want, um, a variety of, of methodological approaches. Um, this is actually quite challenging for us. Um, it's probably our greatest challenge. Researchers, I'm sorry to say, are on the whole, not always, but on the whole quite conservative in their methodologies. And we'd wanted more innovation than, than we are getting. But we are using, and we will be organising our report to talk about... Um, um, different approaches. There's the approach from econo economics, um, whether that's national economies, satellite accounting for those who come across it. There's the econometric holistic approach, which actually asks people. Um, it's contingent valuation. Um, it essentially involves asking people how much they would pay for something that is free. Um, it's now accepted to be used for environmental benefits. You ask people how much compensation they'd want if the meadow um, on the edge of, their, of where they lived was removed. Um, and this is actually acceptable um, for government green book analyses. I think there are, there are areas here which we are indeed um, researching. We have a big project going on involving Tate and the Natural History Museum um, to look at these econometric methods and the well-being methods. And if we can find acceptable methodologies for the Treasury's green book, then we should actually establish them. And the, and the Treasury does appear to be interested in the, in the work we're doing. Um, we shouldn't say that it somehow is not telling us all that we want to know. Of course it's not telling us all that we want to know. But I think if we can find um, measures that um, work for the Green Book, that doesn't stop us telling all the rest, but it does actually mean that we've moved forward in the ways in which um, uh, government uh, makes its, its funding decisions. So those are the approaches from economics. The other approaches I, I can run through more quickly. There's the traditional social science approach, methodologies of surveys, focus groups and interviews. There's ethnographic and anthropological approaches. Um, there's arts-based and hermeneutic. An example of the arts-based one, which I really like, um, is um, there's a, 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 a dance programme, contemporary dance, um, for um, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds in South London, which goes on at Tate. Um, and how can you get 
access to what value they think they're getting out of it. The method that's being used is actually filming all their activity over the time that this contemporary dance program goes on, that they're, that they're involved in, film it all, and then give them the film and ask them to edit it into something that they think communicates to others what it was about. And that is a really very clever technique, using arts itself to evaluate arts activity. And I thought that, I found that interesting. There are others like that. And there are emerging other, other, other methodologies that I won't go into now for reasons of time. Um, something quickly on just what the, project, what the project's done. Um, I've called it harnessing the imagination of researchers. And what we've done is we've put out funding calls over the last 18 months. And that's how a research council works. An open call um, in the early part of 2013. A targeted call in which we pinpointed a whole lot of areas that weren't getting um, work done on them. Um, um, and got a lot of bids in there. And we've commissioned just a small number of commissions um, um, in, in, in critical areas that we didn't get, um, uh, we didn't get um, bids in, one of which was the econometric work um, 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 on museum experiences. Um, we've made about 70 awards, mostly they're research awards, but also quite a lot of critical reviews of the literature, pulling together what we know in an area, but doing so in a critical, um, engaged fashion, and some expert workshops we had a brilliant one on art in prisons, um, run by the Arts Alliance, which is responsible for research in that area, um, to actually discuss a particular theme. We had a number of those. We've also organised some big symposia, one in Washington with the National Endowment for the Arts on Arts Participation, which was very successful, an international symposium. We've had one on cultural and post-conflict that I referred to. Later this week, we've got one on art and science and the way in which um, what interests me in that is not the classic communication dissemination line, but rather... Um, for me, it's not the only aim of the symposium, but for me it's what happens when artists start working with scientists? Do they, do they shake up? Do they help artists, uh, scientists to think differently? Do they play that disruptive role that often arts and science pa- um, partnerships can contain in disrupting some of, some of the linearity of science research? And it's a really interesting area. You can ask about the disruption that happens in the other direction as well, of course, but from the purpose of this project, I think that's an interesting theme. The problem is we can only fund the work that, that, that people bid to do, um, however much we guide and encourage. And that does mean that it can be frustrating at times. You've already heard me talking about the things that didn't get bids and haven't been researched. On the other hand, if Patricia Koshinska, um, the project researcher, and I had chosen everything that we wanted to fund and simply asked the people to come and do work on this, that and the other, um, we'd have missed all the exciting stuff they came up with that we hadn't even dreamed about. I did give a moment's thought to, um, given here I'm at, uh, at the National Archives, is, is, is what projects have we funded um, that are about archives or history and cultural engagement? Um, the most striking one is the one I can't pronounce. Any Gaelic speaker here? Uh, um, it's the value of digital archives and the, I'll call it the Komen Idrad. Um, sounds plausible. Um, long-established historical societies in the Outer Hebrides, um, which gathered local stories, local archives, local material, intangible heritage, tangible heritage, and collected it and wrote about it and talked about it. Some of the islands, 100% of the adult population are members of the society. This is not a niche activity. And this is a piece of work to look at what happens when they move into a digital world where this stuff is now being digitised um, and how, what effect that has on, on the role of, of, of archives in the memory and the, and the current life of, of, of people on those islands. Um, and it's a really interesting subject. 
Um, and the others are, I mean, just quickly, producing historical Abergavenny is a project to actually use Facebook to gather archival material, um, um, memories, photos, um, all kinds of other things, um, which are not accessed in other ways. And whether Facebook gets you into new community, new, new kinds of, different kinds of people and evokes different kinds of stories that can be gathered into the project that is historical Abergavenny. Um, and then there are three others that I, I, I really am... No, I've got to do the last one. Archives and Museums in Post-Conflict. At the Post-Conflict Conference last week, um, Christine, I got Christine Koopmer a couple of weeks ago. I got Christine Koopmer from Estonia, who I knew, to come and talk about her work on archives and museums in the former Yugoslavia. And she'd done, been part of a team doing research on looking at the way in which the history of the country was told in different ways, in different, in different parts of the former Yugoslavia. And I think it was really interesting way of looking at how archives and museums get used in a post-conflict situation. Finally, the challenge for us, um, the objective of the project is understanding. It's a research goal, it's not an advocacy goal. As I said at the beginning, our aim is to help us all to have more grown-up conversations on the value of arts and culture than we've had in the past. And yet we do want it to be useful and relevant. It's about ev understanding, about evidence, about metho methodologies. We want it to be relevant to the cultural world itself at all levels. And yes, we want it to be helpful in making the case for public contributions. And we want it to be persuasive to policymakers. Um, getting that balance right is really important between the two. And we have resisted being pulled into advocacy work. Um, it has refused recently to write a piece for a, a, a nice journal that really wanted uh, a piece of, you know, want to be right with passion about the importance of art and culture. And I said, no, um, do that at other times. I'll do that over a pint. Um, but in, uh, publicly, this is a research project. Um, it's not an advocacy project. Um, the report, when it comes out late in 2015, um, will be a wide-ranging report. Um, um, we'll have some of the answers, but we'll be far from having all the answers. And I think we'll be providing a base for future work, work, I hope, which the HRC will want to build on. But future work that will be driven, I hope, by the enhanced understanding um, that we'll have brought from the project, and that, after all, is what research is meant to produce. Thank you. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.